welcome to Behind the Edit, a podcast that peeks behind the scenes and discusses the unexpected and often very personal victories, stumbles and detours on a path to building a creative brand and business. I'm your host, Christine Mankies, creative pioneer, award-winning photographer, founder of The Pretty Blog, editor, visual storyteller, problem solver, recovering workaholic, mom and dynamic dot connector. Over the next few months, I'll be sitting down with South African multifaceted designers and entrepreneurs to uncover their unique and at times zigzag journeys to build what seems like a perfectly edited brand. With a humble start and a heart for training people, Luke Pedersen, alongside his university buddy and business partner, James Leonard, founded their furniture design company, Pedersen & Leonard, back in 2008. Over the years, Pedersen & Leonard have designed custom furniture pieces for private homes, restaurants, hotels, and offices. The latest, including Coopers and the Silo District in Cape Town. They're also the creators of the infamous Bucket Chair. This creative duo grew their team to more than 30 people in just over a decade, which is an impressive accomplishment, especially when closely examining the meticulous craftsmanship and premium quality of their finished products. Today's guest is Luke Pedersen, the one half of this iconic Cape Town brand, as well as co-founder of Field Office Cafe. Known for their simple lines, functional design, and timeless aesthetic, their Scandinavian touch is visible in every piece Pedersen and Leonard creates. But beyond having immense respect for Luke's deep understanding of design, I'm struck by his ability to see and create opportunities all around him. Whether he's discovering a design within a piece of steel or training someone with no prior manufacturing experience, it's a skill our country definitely needs more of. Okay, awesome. Everyone's phone's off, eh? Well, that's probably the Nokia 3310. The last time I heard a ringtone. Luke, welcome to Behind the Edit. We're super excited to have you in studio today and for you to just take time out of your super busy schedule, sanding down and running a team in a factory. Yeah. I came across your brand many years ago and I've been following the journey and we've never really met in person. So yeah. thanks so much for coming. Pleasure. <laughs> One of the things that stands out for me from the Pedersen and Leonard brand is the simplicity of your design and the clean lines. So I came from a design background and I've always been intrigued by very different disciplines of design. With you guys, the furniture is something that I've always been excited about, but I don't know a lot about it. So I'm very excited to hear more about how you actually go about creating these incredible pieces. But firstly, let's start with the journey of starting the Pedersen and Leonard brand. So you have a business partner. Tell us a bit more about this partnership and how it started. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to take time out and do this kind of stuff. So my business partner is James Leonard. And the funny story is we met actually in the line at Cape Tech. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> registering on registration day. So like the day before we actually started and we just got to know each other a little bit. And then the next day, I suppose, like anything, when you arrive in a class and you're nervous and you don't know <laughs> anyone, you kind of go to the person that you saw the day before. And we did that. And I suppose we started a friendship and probably even more than that was a way of working together that became what we are now, very much complementary skills and complementary personalities. So 
as far as I understand, you guys started Pedersen and Leonard out of a kind of realizing there's not a lot of job opportunities yeah. um, in South Africa, yeah. which I find quite fascinating. Tell me a bit more about like, I think you guys traveled and you came back. Yeah, yeah. So, so we both traveled uh, independently. James went to work on yachts for two years and he had a cool time cruising around. <laughs> and I mean, even that, I think when you look at it now with hindsight, like you see just the impact that's got on his aesthetic and his way of solving problems. When you live on a boat, you have to be self-sufficient. Everything on a boat is like super well-designed, polished, like designed to withstand all the elements, you know, really, really good stuff. Like some of the best like product design and resolved kind of stuff when the boat is your whole like safety and your whole <laughs> life is on the boat everything is like absolute essentials only you know yeah and i went to sweden to do a master program there so i spent two years there and for me it was also just like an amazing time to be exposed to a society where design is so normal and it's everywhere and it's like pervasive it's like right through every space you go into like the most boring home affairs kind of you know. Oh, please, yeah. please. Can you guys have an influence there? Yeah, absolutely. The dream project, to redesign home affairs. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just everywhere from the bus stops and wow. you know, all the spaces. And I think just to be in a culture where design appreciation is something that people all value, people understand that they understand what good design is, what value that's creating, as opposed to like design is in a name brand of, thing but really like what does design mean to a society so for me it was amazing just to spend two years in that environment and you you learn a lot but you also absorb so much I felt like I absorbed way more than what I actually learned you know what was on paper just being there and just realizing there's another way to do stuff there's always a better way you know it's interesting if I think back of my varsity years where I studied visual communication which is also graphic design in other courses and what you're saying now is like as people and as society, we always kind of categorize design items either as something functional, it's like solving a problem, mm. or it's just appreciated for its beauty, but it has no purpose yeah. type of thing. Yeah. But I now understand your yeah. brand and look and feel mm. even more knowing that you went to Scandinavian country yeah. where obviously minimalism is such a yeah. essential. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but it's ingrained in their communities. It's so yeah. part of their everyday life. It's not just something that's appreciated in a gallery. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, the Scandinavian design for me is very much rooted in who you are. And on my family side, my great-grandfather came here from Denmark. So oh, really? I, I had this connection and this feeling. It was more of a feeling. I didn't yeah. grow up knowing him at all. But going to the village where he came from, there's a little fishing village in the wow. northern part of Denmark that he came from. And I actually saw the house and I went and stood outside the house that he grew up in. No this way. very beautiful, long, low um, fishing house, you know, like the one you have to duck to get in. Oh my and, goodness. Um, and it's built in this harsh climate place where everything was low because of the winds. It's like incredibly windy and hectic to live there. And the life was very hard, you know. Mm. And just seeing all of that, for me, just resonated. There was something special about being in Scandinavia in general. But one of the things is that like design for them was born out of that necessity. Like they needed good quality stuff. Not because it's on trend or fashionable or anything. Everything was made well because they needed it to be. Like it had to survive. It had to be used for a long time. Like if you made a tool or an implement or a chair or a table, you didn't just make it for the season or for five years. You made it like to last, you know. Yeah, and, and not and just because it it's trendy. justified itself, yeah. <laughs> so if you made another one, you'd have to have a good justification for the next one. Like why would you make another table 
if you had a table that you got from your family line. So that's what I think of when I think of Scandinavian design. Mm. And I mean, in terms of timing and stuff, like our business, uh, when we started was 2008. And at the time, I think there was a new appreciation for Scandinavian design, like worldwide, which was coming out of a lot of different places. And there's these worldwide influences that happen and it almost feels like it all lines up, you know? Yes. So that was definitely timing wise for us. It was great because James and I we never even had a conversation about Scandinavian design as a thing, wow. but that is very much our way. And James's father is an architect and his grandfather as well. And so he comes from this line, like his dad's work is incredibly um, resolved in terms of like materials, just the right material for the job, like not too much. It's not like flashy, it's authentic. There's no like polished silver finishes in his dad's buildings. It's all like timber and glass and stone and so I think if you look at it like now, obviously at the time you just, you know, just doing your thing. But when you look back, it's quite amazing, like the timing of how we started at the time and our aesthetic was very much in terms of what was going on. It was like on trend. Yes. Even though we had no intention of like being an on trend type of business. That I find really fascinating. I remember, I think I saw your bucket chair mm. at Design and Darba. And then I think a few months later, or I can't remember the exact timing, but we were invited to one of the launch events at Old McDaddy in Elgin. Yeah. And I know you guys were also involved there. Yeah. And you walk into that space and it's just like timber everywhere, yeah. which was at the time, as you say, like quite trendy and quite new. And it was very Instagrammable, if I can say that. Absolutely, I don't think there yeah. was Instagram at that stage. But yeah, I think looking back at one's journey and kind of going like, wow, there's a few stars that aligned. So probably a little bit of luck and a little bit of serendipity and a lot of things happening. But let's just go back to like you guys coming back from your travels, yeah. obviously having this kind of influence of your history, but also things that aligned. Mm. And you come back to South Africa and you kind of go like, okay, cool. Do we apply for a job? Do we yeah. like start making a table? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did that happen? So, so we were both like independently trying to find work and the design industry was not very big here and if you worked as a designer you know inevitably you kind of worked in fields that are like around design but not like what we're doing now which we see it as like pure design those kinds of jobs didn't really exist or if they did exist there weren't many people hiring i spent about six months sending my cv out to different places and not getting any job offers and aware of the fact that I needed to provide for my <laughs> wife. I had a big student loan I had to pay off. Jen, actually, my wife, basically eventually gave me an ultimatum, which helped me so much. <laughs> I was so miserable and I think she was probably just tired of me being miserable. And I was doing so many side hustles. I was building for people, renovating houses, and I imported like 500 old Dutch bicycles, container loads of these bicycles all over the show still now. And she eventually said to me, look, if you don't get a job by the end of this particular month, then we're going to rent a garage and you're going to start making furniture because that's what I really wanted to do. And I kind of needed that permission from her. I just needed someone just to say, listen, let's actually take the risk, you know. So she's actually your like angel investor slash like co-founder co yeah. slash. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's actually only now in the last like year or so that she's like actually officially been working with me. Behind the scenes, she's always been the boss, you know, but <laughs> the neck that turns the head, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know a bit more, like, how did you guys decide on this name? Like, obviously, it's your names, but yeah. putting your name out there is quite a commitment, I'd it is, say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so James and I were in touch and he was doing the same thing as me, trying to find work and doing some side hustles. And we then said, well, let's put out a range together. 
and just see how it goes. We didn't have a business plan or an idea of like, what would this become? Mm. We just thought, well, we're both free and we worked together the whole of Varsity. So it was normal for us to do all our projects as group projects, even though they were like individual projects. We just <laughs> did it that way. So James and I basically then just put a range together and we said, let's see how the market goes and see if people like it. So let's design like one chair, one bookshelf, one lamp, one table, you know, do a whole bunch of stuff and then see what the response is like and basically decide from there, you know. Okay. That's very much what we did. And the bucket stool, the, the piece you remember, was right at the end of that range. I think oh, we wow. did, if I remember, it was 12 items that we started with, 10 or 12. And the bucket stool was like very much this kind of fun, comical throwaway piece at the end. Yeah. where we were talking about this idea of like, wouldn't it be cool to take like an old school metal bucket like we all remember from farm days mm -hmm. and let's turn that into a seat. And it'll be this fun, colorful little piece at the end of our more serious range, you know, yeah, like, yeah. wow, this is the, what they think, <laughs> you know. And it's so funny how that works because then it's the piece that like gets the most attention and got us into so many publications. I mean, I've lost count, but I think we sold probably close to 5,000 of those what? over the years. Wow. Which is a lot for a little humble piece that like mm. was your throwaway piece. And it's gone to absolutely every country I can think of, like 20 odd countries all over the world. It's been exhibited in museums and galleries. It's gone like oh, wow. crazy amount of places, you know? Yeah. And I think it kind of captured what we were trying to do and we just didn't realize it. Like this kind of meeting point between handmade and machine made, like a fun, colorful, but also something serious and something useful. And somehow I think in South Africa, especially at the time, 2008 or nine, around there, that didn't really exist. The idea of like a fun, colorful piece in an interior was still quite new. Yes, I can I, remember, I remember so them. many people like being like, wow, a red, like imagine two red bucket stools in my interior. And everyone was like, wow, you know. And it's quite bright colors. I, bright, I, I remember yeah. the like yellow and the red. And that's mm. exactly what I thought. Like as a minimalist, I mean, before recording, I was telling you, I just want to powder coat everything white in my house. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I remember seeing those stools in like this color, but I think it was exactly what you mentioned now. It's almost like it's fun, but there's also like a part of heritage. You know, if I think yeah. of like my father growing up on a farm and they used to still go milk the cows in the morning for milk. And they use those buckets, like one they would sit on and one they would milk the cow with. And there's some like African heritage. Yeah, like nostalgic. Oh, yeah. It's just nostalgic, but also it's something that you'd never imagine being elevated. I think it's upholstered on the inside, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Like maybe just explain to people what it looks like and they can yeah, obviously so, find so them with their Google. It looks exactly like you remember an old galvanized steel bucket to be like mm. on the farm. And I also grew up with a lot of farm influence. Like my grandfather was a sheep farmer in the Karoo. So for me, the bucket was so nostalgic, but it's powder coated in like a, a bright color and a gloss so it's that bucket but it's then elevated because of the coloring and then the rest of the elements are really high end in the sense it's like birch plywood that's been cut on a cnc router so it's very precise it's not like handcrafted and i think that meeting point is really cool from a design perspective yeah. and then the seat is upholstered and it flips over so the other side of the seat flips over and that becomes like a drinks side table or something yeah. so it's quite useful in that way and people love just putting you we, we actually when we made it first, we sort of sized it so that you could have like a six pack of beers or like two <laughs> champagne bottles in there or whatever and put ice inside it. Obviously. And so it was kind of useful in lots of ways. People use it for their kids' toys to store things inside. And we made a nice little leather tag that you could uh, lift the seat with. Do you guys still make them? We still do, yeah. The journey was quite long. 
because that's, I suppose, what you're doing here with this podcast. Like what's behind the scenes of if you want to make a successful bucket stool, <laughs> you actually have to have a bucket made because it turns out that galvanized buckets firstly don't really exist. They're really hard to come by now. I mean, I think they've probably come back into fashion, but you can only find a few of them and they're not the right size. And if you want like a seat, it has to be the right size and form oh, wow. for a human. And the ones we could buy in the hardware stores just didn't have the right proportion. It didn't look right. So we ended up having to track down a craftsman who could make them. No way. And so we made the buckets themselves. We made a template for him so he could make the custom bucket, which was cool because then he stamped our little logo in, the plus. Yes. Stamped that in for us with a hammer. And it was so amazing. I mean, being in the townships here and working with these guys to like get their level of craft to a point that it was good enough, like quality. And they had to make lots of them because the orders were flying in and we had to keep up, you know. And it was, I mean, so many challenges. When you look at it now, it's quite like nostalgic. At the time, it was a challenge. It was really hard, like getting these guys to work to a level of accuracy that we could match with our CNC machines for the parts to all come together and to fit, you know. Like almost every batch of buckets, we had to resize the seats because they would never wow. be the same. So on your payroll, you have like a full-time bucket maker. <laughs> like... Yeah, I mean, we, it's, it's so cool. The guy's called Morgan. We've used the same guy since then. Uh, wow. We're still in touch. He still makes buckets for us. And he's traveled all over South Africa. He moves all the time, but we stay in touch. And whenever we need, we call him and he makes more. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'd love to know a bit more about the team. Obviously, it's the two of you guys, yeah. you know, like running the show or yeah. maybe your wife running the yeah. show alongside you guys. Tell us a bit more about the people. I know that you guys recently made a beautiful video where you saw the faces of the guys in the factory. How do you come about these guys? And I know that you also have quite a intense kind of training program. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so our team started with just James and I, and our first factory was smaller than this recording studio. <laughs> so it was the two of us, and we had the drawing on the computer on the desk, and then we'd finished drawing, and we'd put the computer underneath the desk and then use the desk for our workshop and <laughs> make stuff by hand. So that was our first experience of black production, the two of mm. us. And it informed our design a lot because we had to design something that we could make with our limited hand tools. And that hasn't changed in, even though our production's grown a lot and we have a big team now. We have probably around 30 people in wow. the factory and another eight or so people helping in admin and design and production and logistics and all the other stuff that has to be there to make the engine run. Our first employee is still with us, a guy called wow. Prince. He was our first guy, he joined us back in whenever that was, so long ago. He's still with us, which is great. And he's actually our quality controller. So he looks right at the end of everything now. In that sense, he's seen everything leave the door. So it's, wow. it's cool to have that experience looking over the quality. But yeah, we do a lot of training. It's really hard to hire people for this thing because what we do is so different. There isn't really a school that can train people into this because we're mixing so many materials and disciplines and machines, processes. It would be great if there was. <laughs> and if we were doing something that everyone else was doing, it would be great. But it's like this mix of joinery and high-tech and low-tech and it's production, so it's in real time. So we're training people on the job. So inevitably, we always have like one or two people, sometimes four or five people that are being trained and on an internship type of thing in the factory itself, where we're basically just paying the guys to come and learn. And out of that, what I'm always looking for is just the right attitude. If I find people that have got like a great attitude and work ethic, I can like train them. Most of our guys are coming out of like being a barman or some other totally unrelated industry, but they've just got the right 
mix. Yes. And then we've got such amazing stories of guys that have come from no experience that are now running like really expensive machines and doing amazing work. And we haven't had the same success out of people that have come out of the industry when we've hired people that are trained to do those things. And I think it's partly just because they're not used to being well-treated and being in an environment where you're really well-respected, but you also like got a high level of responsibility, which is one of the things I've always wanted to change. From the beginning, I've just said, like, I don't want to ever run our business with a whip, you know. Unfortunately, because of our past, manufacturing is very much one of those industries where people have been like pressed down and not really allowed to grow and to progress or to even have input, like to have a say in what they're doing, you know. Celebrate their contribution to the business. I want to go back to what you just said about recruiting people. I think that's such a huge topic. Such a challenge. (laughs) Such a huge topic. I mean, firstly, starting with what you guys said, like, you know, you couldn't really find a job, but then obviously that means there's a lot of people out there that can't find a job. And I think being able to create jobs is amazing, but having that opportunity, you need to fill it with someone and that I find quite hard. And through the journey of my photography business, the pretty blog, you know, we've recruited quite a few people. And I also agree that I think the, almost my industry standard of recruiting people, kind of like putting something out there, asking for a CV, you know, I really don't think that works so well. I'm trying to figure out what is the right way to do it. But I agree with you in the sense that Skill set isn't necessarily the only thing that you need from someone. I always look at the attitude first as well. Like I feel like I can train anyone (laughs) if they have the right attitude and if they have the right work ethic. I find that's something that still needs to be solved is like the HR side of small business. A few years ago, I started reaching out to an HR consultant because I just found I had no idea how to actually recruit people properly. And you also don't start with like having perfect contracts in, yeah, <laughs> in yeah, order yeah, and all, all that. that. Yeah. You kind of learn it along the way. Yeah. So let's jump back to the design process. Like you mentioned that you had the table, you'd draw and then you'd like make by hand. What is your process of designing? Is it quite organic? Do you get inspired by something and then you just start drawing crazy and you're like, don't talk to me for five hours or like, what does that entail? You try and work that out. Like, what is the process? You know, in the process, you're working it out. My process is quite, um, I like enjoy verbal processing a lot. Stephen is like our senior designer. He's been with us for seven or eight years. So him and I, we design really well together and we are really good at pulling out what we're trying to do from each other. So we generally will just sit over a table and and just start by like breaking down the brief and saying, okay, so what are we trying to achieve? What is our library here? Like what materials or what processes can we use? What do we want to learn? Like what are we trying to push ourselves on? Are we trying to just design this thing in our comfort zone because maybe the brief is really tight or the timing is super tight so we don't have time to learn any lessons? Or is this something like a passion project? Like Steve and I always have at least one passion project on the go where like at the moment it's a cabin which we're making, which is horrendous. It's a massive thing, you know, and it's really beautiful, but it's like super challenge for us because it's got so many parts and it's a really big thing. But yeah, my process is very much like that, breaking down the brief and processing it verbally and doing some sketches and then kind of our design is really driven by production And I think that's what sets us apart from other design firms internationally, I think, because especially in other countries, design and production don't really sit together. Normally, it's more institutionalized. So it's like you're a design office and then you send that off to the engineers and they engineer it for production. 
And in South Africa, that doesn't exist. That's a luxury, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're like the one-stop shop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, like a few years ago, I did some lecturing at a university in France and it was third-year students and I lectured them for like 10 days or something like that. And at the end, they presented their drawings to me and I was blown away at how unresolved they were from a production point of view. Like third-year level students designing stuff that wouldn't actually be able to be made or wouldn't wow. stand up, but would you know be like completely wonky or whatever. Yeah. And I realized like this is their paradigm because they qualify a third year or fourth year and then they go into a design job and then they design beautiful stuff that someone else has to figure out how to make. <laughs> and for me, that's such a lost opportunity Yeah. because for me, the magic happens in the making and that meeting place between, like, it's a push and pull. Because if you just hand your drawing over to an engineer, they're going to just make it the way they want it. And you're going to lose the essence of the piece from a design point of view. So for me, like, design and production are just hand in hand. Like, I don't think you can separate them without compromise. But isn't that the beauty of living in South Africa? A boonwaka plan type Absolutely. of thing, you know? It's yeah. like, we're going to solve it no yeah. matter what. I think that's one of the things yeah. that always brings Ian and I back, like from our travels. We love seeing first world countries. We love going to New York and like all the rest. That's so inspiring from a design point of view and a tech point of view. But you come back home because you just feel it's almost too easy there. You kind Absolutely. of do one thing, it works, everything works. Yeah. And for us, we've always been intrigued by this like third world country concepts. It's yeah. hard. It's not easy. And you obviously have your limitations, I think, to, I don't actually want to know a bit more about like the actual production side, yeah. like the machines that you can, I don't know, like, a, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. how it even works. You need to explain to us. Even the materials, you probably have way more limitations here, mm. but doesn't that excite you? Like it's from amazing. a design point yeah, of view? For me, it's the best. And people often ask, where do we get our inspiration? It's in the factory. It's the making. Because, well, firstly, we don't have time <laughs> to go and look at magazines and like go on inspiration trips. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is awesome, but we just generally don't have time. So you don't sit on Pinterest um, all day? <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> I mean, it would be cool. The thing is, machines and materials are themselves inspiring because if you go back to like what we're trying to achieve from a point of view of like use the best material for the job. So then knowing the material really well is the best way to do that. Like knowing how long you can span a piece of timber or a piece of steel, what's the best kind of format or the right thickness of steel to do this particular job. Like all of those things are your library for good design mm. and not like, design that's over the top, you know. So for us, being so involved and intertwined with the factory and the making is how we design. It's like a complete enmeshed thing. So it's like in the playing and yeah. in the discovery yeah. that everything kind and of the mistakes, happens. Just all the mistakes, the things that go wrong. I do a lot of the pipe bending and I love this old machine. It's just a beautiful old there's actually a video, I think, on our profile on this particular machine, but it was a dream machine to find this really old Italian machine. Oh, wow. And it's probably uh, 60 years old or 70 years old or something. And in bending those pipes, for me, that's like my one place. I put my headphones on and I go in there and I just have so much fun just seeing how a really boring form of like a round piece of steel just suddenly with a little bend comes like a beautiful thing. And you just oh. look at it and you're like, this thing's got value. Like, what is this <laughs> thing now? You know, what could it be? And I just look at them and then I like weld them together and play with them. And that's how a lot of our products have developed. Wow, I'm actually imagining you there being the pop and it's like the hand quality and the playing with it and discovering what this can be that the value actually gets yeah, added. Absolutely. Like we've got a product on our range, which is a firewood storage that you mount onto the wall. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a rectangle with uh, rounded ends and it sort of mounts off the wall. And that product came from the same pipe that we had for a chair. 
one of our chairs called the fluted chair, which uh, we had this special tool made for that shape. And we bent this pipe and we just looked at it and we we're like, this is the most beautiful piece of pipe now. <laughs> now that it's got this beautiful radius, it's just so nice. And I just had this on the floor in the office for a few weeks. And James and I would just look at it and be like, what could we do with this pipe? It's so nice, you know? And then we put two of them together and we realized it made this lovely form. And then the firewood holder became like from that. Wow. Which is a great piece and it's like solving a lot of people's problems, like where to put firewood and <laughs> make it look nice. So that's how a lot of our products actually end up coming love, to life. I love listening to all these stories, like with previous designers we've also had here. You know, it's sometimes in the product that you didn't even pre-designed, the yeah. magic happens. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about, you're talking a lot about steel, but you guys also have a lot of timber. Like a lot of your products are a combination of timber and steel. And I'm very curious to know a little bit more about your philosophy around sustainability. I know that you guys have quite a sustainable outlook on your business. And I think I agree with what I've read that you've said before. Mm, it's almost mm. like misinterpreting sustainability. You know, yeah. there's a the very yeah. short-sighted, if I could say, look at sustainability. I think it's such a huge topic at the moment. I'm definitely not an expert, so I'll just start with that. But mm. I sometimes look at trend conversations and I always ask, Okay, but let's go deeper. And I think you guys have had quite an interesting philosophy around that. Tell yeah, us a bit more yeah. about it. Yeah, I got in trouble like a long time ago. I gave a lecture at like one of these design kind of shows and I got in so much trouble because I just said, look, I don't think green is that green, you know. And obviously it's a wide topic, as you've said, and it's not easily answered in like a short space. But what has to happen is that conversation needs to happen and then laws need to change. And then eventually green does become really green. But at the moment, a lot of what you see outside, like people advertise something as green, is not necessarily green. It's almost know. like a superficial label. It is. It's a label. For yeah. marketing, I'm just going to put it out there, yeah. but that is basically what's happening a lot. A lot of the time, yeah. And so for us, what that meant was like we looked at it and said, okay, so how do we, like this wasn't a new thing to us. This was always how we've been of like, well, it's not superfluous. Like the timber that we use is because we want the table to last a really long time and we're using just the right amount of it, not like too much of it. So like you'll notice our tabletops are 20 mil thick and you can make tabletops thicker if you want, but that 20 mil is like the right amount for our structure and the way we approach the rest of it. In terms of climate, South Africa is not great for hardwoods. And so the colder climates are better for that. And then that sort of leads you down a path of like saying, well, okay, so if we're not going to be buying local timber because of the climate and because of the conditions that are here, there is great local timber available, but it doesn't always last because of the way it's grown and the way it's harvested and the way that it's processed here, because we don't really have such a big industry for hardwoods. And so if we used a local timber, but the table cracked within like a year or two and the table had to be remade because of that, then that wouldn't necessarily be the most green or sustainable way of approaching it. I agree. Versus using an imported timber that will be good for the next 50 years or however long you want. In a way, like that's more green, even though it doesn't necessarily tick so many boxes. And so I think it's just a broader look at it. Like, for example, the American oak that we use, that industry is so well developed now that like they plant more than they harvest. And because it's in such good demand worldwide, it's such a good timber to be used like across the board. So that's like fantastic, you know, and the downside is that it has to be transported here. The upside is that you can pass your table on to your kids and they can pass it on to their kids. When you look at the life cycle of the product that way around mm. versus let's say you making something out of South African pine or something soft, it's not going to last in the same way, you know. 
But that's how our parents used to kind of get furniture, right? It was like hand-me-downs yeah. from family heirlooms, if I could say such. And it's like we kind of grew up in quite a fast-paced consumerism type of world. And I know when you start out, you varsity student, you can't afford necessarily yeah. the most expensive piece. But I'm leaning more and I'm, I think as I'm becoming older, seeing the value in that, like buying something simple, but that lasts and that has longevity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's been amazing to see over our journey. There have been some clients that like a young couple that gets married and they're starting out and they choose a table or a bed or something from us as their wedding present or they save up for it and they buy it. It's amazing. You know, for me, that's so honoring because they understand the value behind it. And at that age, they're not earning a lot of money. They could put their money into so many other things. But the fact that they choose this is really a meaningful thing. You know, like they're going to have this for a long time. I also believe that there's something in saving up for something. You've mm. become so yeah. comfortable with the idea that you can just go into like a big mass store and you can just get a bedside table. But to know that that's the one I really want and to save up for that, I think that's also quite special. I think there's definitely kind of a move back towards that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Do you guys see that? Like yeah. in terms of like your consumers yeah. are kind of wide spectrum from yeah. younger to older people. From all ages and all over the country, like from the smallest towns that we struggle to deliver to. <laughs> yeah, all over the show. Yeah. But you're now talking about getting the product to that small little town. I'm assuming some of your products are flat packed or... Yeah, all of our stuff is. Oh, is very it? Much, is it, is yeah. it all self-assemble in some way? It is all self-assemble. It's very much part of our design process. From the beginning, like I said, our factory was this little office upstairs. So we had to get everything down this narrow stairwell. And even that just helped us realize like from day one, we're going to have to design for this. And we wanted to appeal to a broader market. So we needed to think about that and... Now at least half of our products leave Cape Town going to other parts of the country or internationally. So it's still very much part of our thinking. As you kind of go further and further, we now design the packaging ourselves and we've designed like a packaging system that really works well for us wow. based on feedback from the client and feedback from the couriers that we use and just seeing how things often get completely abused en route in transit, you know. So what's strange and like you said earlier, the make a plan kind of thing, mm. Like to be a designer here or to do it in our particular way, it's like to design the product. Sure, that's like the easy part. That's yeah. the beginning, you know. <laughs> but then it's to design the whole system. You design your production system, you do the marketing, you do the packaging design, you sell the piece, you do the logistics, the returns. The, You know, it's not just like I'm a designer. I'm sitting back and doing awesome sketches all day long. It's like really the hassle, you know. You have to be multifaceted. Yeah. I think to be an entrepreneur in South Africa or any third world country, or just to start out small, even in a first world country, probably, you really have to be multifaceted. You need yeah. to have some element of design background, but also a little bit of marketing yeah. and social media and all the yeah. rest. But we all kind of start being the everything yeah. all in one. And then you kind of yeah. branching out with your team. Yeah. I'm curious to know with that kind of branching out and building your team, what was the steps? Who were the first people that you appointed? What was the first need for Pettis and Leonard? Because I think a lot of businesses, they start obviously quite small, yeah. but you get to a stage where you need to start growing. There's obviously a demand. There's now thousands of buckets being ordered <laughs> and all of a sudden there's emails to be answered, etc. Yeah, so yeah. who was your first appointments? Um, and Yeah, we I suppose like a lot of people, you look after yourself last. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> So we hired production. That was our thing. Like we need okay. more and more guys in the factory to help us make the product. And eventually we needed like a junior designer. And 
more designers to help with the technical drawings. James and I split up quite quickly near the beginning where we realized like the two of us can't both be doing everything here. So mm. he went off to do more of the technical work and managing of production, which is how he still does it now. And I went off to doing the people stuff and the creative stuff and client-facing products. So that's still pretty much how we divide the business up now. My job is to get the product in and his <laughs> is to get it out. Um, okay, wow. So yeah, we spent the first few years just uh, slowly hiring people. We both we wanted to be quite careful about it because we didn't want to just grow so fast and then like have to retrench people if it mm. like all fell apart. Yeah. So we were quite cautious. We didn't start off with a big like amount of money or any massive investment or anything like that. So we did it really slowly. We bought like secondhand machines and hand tools slowly became bigger tools. And now yeah, we have like a proper factory. But I think the way we did it would be the way I would say you have to do it. Like yeah. to me, the other route is actually more scary. Like if someone says, here's however many million you need, go and set up a factory from day one, you're just not going to learn the lessons or you're going to learn them at a real high cost. The ones we learned were kind of cheap to learn if you know what I mean. Yeah, to be in the thick um, of things and you kind of make a mistake and you have to yeah. align things again. Yeah. So what are some of those mistakes? Like, have you have you oh, ever shipped so out some products without the right amount of screws? Oh, or man, like... it happens. It, it still happens. <laughs> and people are like, listen, this thing doesn't look like yeah. on your website. It happens still, less and less, because we've got a great team now and we've been really working on culture. And I would say culture is the thing. Like, that's what I spend the biggest amount of my energy on now. Besides product design, like actually designing stuff, I'm just interested in the culture. And I think it's like you said earlier on, at a certain age, you also like, for me, I want to be around people that are motivated by this thing, not just like making a living, but really enjoying it and building culture. Because I see culture as the way we change the world, change everyone around us. And so the company culture, the way we treat our staff, the way we treat materials, the way we treat waste, like we're quite focused on bringing down the amount of waste that's in our production. So all of those things, like if your culture is right, then I think you're going towards the right stuff. And it, there's no like arrival point, but you constantly just like, okay, so how do we improve that aspect? Like if we missed the screws, you know, and that <laughs> does happen. Like, what do we do? We first have to like apologize and make it right. So we've got to like quickly courier them some right screws and say sorry. And we fortunate most of the time people are reasonable. I think you always get some unreasonable people and and. Yeah. and to be quite honest, I think those people have got bigger issues in their lives and we just like leave it at that. Most people are like, they know what they're getting from us and so they know that we've put our names on the door yeah. on purpose. We didn't make some random name that we could walk away from one day and just like liquidate the business and disappear, you know. Yeah. It's our names and we stand by that so we want to be around for a long time and make sure that people know what they're getting from us. Mm. So we go above and beyond in terms of that. Like we have a returns policy because we have to have one by law. Yeah, we've got the minimum in terms of what the law requires but actually our real returns policy is like we want you as a customer to be really happy, yes. like satisfied with what you've got. And providing you're a reasonable person, Yes. which 99% <laughs> of the world are, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure you're happy with it. We don't want you to be stuck with something that you're not happy with. We want you to actually have a piece that's going to last a long time. And the more you have it, the more you like develop an affinity for it. You really love the piece, you know? Yeah. That's a big thing. It's not like we just want you to buy something and disappear. And I think that attitude has always served us really well. We have such a high rate of returning customers 
and people that have bought from us for years and years and years. They're like every now and then someone will come in and say, I bought this from you in like 2012. Can you <laughs> give it a sand or a varnish now? You know, and it's so nice because it's like they are still getting the value from the piece. They understand what they got. My friend Nadia, like her whole house is better than it. Cool. <laughs> she's a massive fan. And every time she asks me like, where can I get something like that? And then she answers herself. She's like, wait, let me just quickly check Penicillin's <laughs> website. And I think that's the cool part in starting a business with almost want to say like real people. I assume all yeah. businesses are built by real people, yeah. but sometimes you get a sense that the business has no heart, you know? Mm. And that's what I love about small entrepreneurial businesses, even though they grow big sometimes, is if they retain that, the yeah. human element to yeah. it. And making mistakes is human. Many years ago, I wrote a blog post called I'm Human and So Are You. And the reason why I wrote it is because I shot a wedding and my electronics failed. On the shoot, everything oh, was wow. perfectly fine. Yeah. But the cards had some technical error that afterwards when I wanted to retrieve the images, it just wasn't there. And I literally felt like this was the end of me, my business, and everything I've worked for. Oh. And after I've recouped myself, I wrote a blog post and it was so interesting to see the response on that blog post from photographers far and wide, how people could connect to you as an mm. another human being going through something terrible and also brides at that stage, realizing that this could happen. I think sometimes we think we live in a world where nothing can go wrong, you know, and if other people make mistakes, it's so bad, but we're all human. We all make yeah. mistakes and your company's run by humans. Yep. And as you said, you try as an entrepreneur to build in processes and systems that hopefully won't fail you, yeah. but at some stage it will. And I think even if you look at your social media as well, like you have quite a big storytelling element, which I enjoy as well from a human point of view. You know, you feel like you can have grace towards those people if they make a mistake because yeah. it's also just it's humans. Real people. You yeah. know, it's real people. It's a big thing, you know, like when you're buying a piece of furniture from a store that you don't know where it's being made, then you have this raised expectation because you don't have any connection to who's making it. But when you're buying it from us, like, as you said, on our website and in the videos and stuff, you actually can see the people. And if you come and visit, I can introduce you to like Zorn. You know, <laughs> I, I want to visit this. This you know, sounds amazing. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's the thing, you know, like if Prince is off sick today, then there's a higher chance that some quality element might be missed because yes. he's the best guy. And sure, we try and build in like checks and balances and we do that stuff. But sometimes someone's child gets sick or someone gets in a car accident or someone's mother passes away. And I think in the beginning, we were like trying to make sure that we could always have a, a way to protect ourselves against those elements of risk. And you do need to, from a business point of view, there are like we come into agreements with big companies, we provide like services or design for big projects, and then we have to just like pull it out the bag, you know. Mm. But in another way, I think it's really important if you're buying a local product to actually go and see the place and see the people because that's ultimately when you sit at the table or you use the item, even if it's a small little coat hook or something, you can actually visualize. And I think that's where the real value sits. It's not that it's only designed here or made here, but you can visualize who actually put this together. And that's really special. And I mean, from a quality point of view, that's how we manage quality in our factory. Our approach is every person in each department is their own quality controller. So we've said like, if you're in the steel working area, for example, and you accept something from the welder and you're the guy that's gonna drill the holes or do whatever, if you accept it from him, that's you putting your stamp on it. Yes. And that's you saying that what he's done is good enough and you now are going to be the next guy who's responsible for the piece. So when you hand it on to the next guy, you're saying, I'm fine with this piece. Yes. And so we've done this to make everyone responsible. Like we want every single guy in the line to say, 
I've put my name on this piece. I'm happy with the level of quality of this piece. And that's great for a team. Everyone yeah. has to take responsibility, but also like a lean way to build a business. I think when middle management comes in, like it does complicate things. Not only does it up the payroll, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also ups the communication. And yeah. actually the whole system needs to change. Yeah, it's, I love that. Yeah, for me, it's also just like back to what I said earlier about factories and production in South Africa, like, you can choose if you want a factory where people are just doing mindless tasks or you want a kind of place where people are actually engaged, like their brain's engaged, they're taking a sense of pride out of it, they see the end product. We've got a catalogue on the wall of all the products like in the factory, in an assembly area of like the high gloss photo shoot kind of products. So the guys can see that's what this is coming out as. Like even wow. though in the rough form it doesn't look like this at all, like what you're doing this is where it's going. This That's is the amazing. space that it's going in. Because again, it's practical because we don't have the time to stand and like watch every person doing their thing. So rather mm. engage them, say, guys, like this is the level of quality you need to put out, you know, and this is why. And it's very slow and painful. The retention rate is super low, which is unfortunate. Not everyone gets it. Some people yeah. come and they work for us and after like a three-month trial or something, we're like, you know what, they don't get it. Like we're just on two different buses here. And so it's kind of the hard way around. But the alternative to that is like running it like a drill sergeant. And I just don't want to do that with my life. I don't think it's uplifting enough. I think people that if they leave our factory and they've been with us for a few years, they've got serious skills that can take them far. You just made me think of something in my past, like while building businesses, we also had at some stage quite a quick turnover of staff. And I remember going like psychologically back to those days. It was really, really hard for Mm. me. And as an entrepreneur, I think many times you start appointing people and I was very hard with myself. I, for many years, actually went into a bit of depression because I was so hard on the fact that why can't I get this right? Like, why don't people want to stay here? You know, and I was so onto the Google office bus, like everything has to be great for all the staff and let's have the great coffee and the beanbags and make everything amazing because I want people to be happy at work. And I really wanted them to be happy, but... I only later realized that not everyone is going to be a good fit. And I think as a young entrepreneur, you also trying to really figure things out. And I'm still trying to figure it out 20 years later, you know, like to get to a place where you actually feel like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And we also know that it's not for everyone, just like your products or your brand is not for everyone. To realize that this culture is just going to be suited for a specific few. And all we need to do is find those people. Yep. Um, Absolutely. That took me years to be okay with that. Yeah, Yeah, I did end up in hospital at some stage because I was so anxious about Mm. making this work. And I think when I stopped fighting for it and just kind of let it flow, that's when things got better. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it just resonates for me. My approach to that, and and I'm the guy that does the hiring and firing, you know, and Mm. in the beginning I used to get so anxious about having to fire someone or having to like end the road with someone. Mm. And it was like confrontation and it like pushed up all my buttons. It was Mm. like really hard to do it because I felt Mm. like, have I failed them or have Mm. they failed themselves and what's going on here? And I think I've had a lot of experience in it. So I feel differently now. And now it's kind of strange because I actually feel like I'm doing the best possible thing for them and for us. Mm. I actually did it this morning. I hired someone and I sat him down. I said to him, we want you to succeed here. Firstly, so just know that whatever we do from this moment onwards, we want you to succeed. That's why we've got you here. Mm. We're not trying to catch you out. We're not trying to make you fail or fire you. Or There's no confrontation needed here. Mm. You need to understand from day one that your success is going to be our success. And so that needs to be the way your frame of reference is. And Mm. 
unfortunately, not everyone has that experience. And so I've learned that like people that are coming to us from previous experience, especially if they've been in factory environments for a long time, they've been pushed down and they haven't been treated with that level of respect that they feel like someone's always trying to catch them out. Almost like operating um, from a level of fear. From fear, and, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and not and on freedom. No. Like I said to him this morning, look, we're not going to ever be watching you. We're going to treat you like an adult. We're going to sign a contract. These are our expectations. Even our contract now says things like, we want you to be a good team member. So that means like getting along well with the team. Like you don't have to be best friends with everyone else, but you've got to be part of the team. You've got to get along well. You've got to like pull your weight. We've got like a roster for mopping the kitchen area. I love that. For example. <laughs> and it's just a silly little thing that actually makes sure that there's no one who's above that. Like yeah. there's no one there who's not prepared to like sweep the floor or be better than that. And I think like going through that process, I've realized when people don't get that, mm. it's actually really easy for me just to say, look, you actually need to go somewhere else because this is not your place. And yeah. the longer we stay like on this path together, the worse it's going to get. Actually, I'm helping you to realize that this isn't the space for you. Yeah. And then I'm freeing the space up for someone else, you know, yeah. and I'm helping the rest of the team not have to like have this difficult kind of confrontation, mm. like personality. And it does happen. Yeah. And you retain a level of humbleness within the team, no matter where you are in the team. My husband Ian and I had a conversation recently because for many years we kind of viewed team culture as a family environment. You know, we've always kind of looked at that analogy and we're like, you know, we want to harness almost like a working family environment. And through the years, we've realized that that doesn't really work because you don't choose your family and you also can't yeah. get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you just have to tolerate everyone, yeah, yeah. you know. Mm. Um, luckily, I love my family. But the analogy that I... I feel more comfortable now in a work environment is what you've mentioned. I was like more like a team. So Ian was saying to me that that is like, you know, if you view it more as kind of a sports team, it makes more sense actually, because it's like, we're all here for one goal. Yeah. We don't have to be best friends. Yeah. We don't have to bry and like have beers together. Mm. You know, we can if we want to, but mm. we don't have to, mm. but we're here for one goal and we all have to pull our weight. We all have to do the special diet and do the training. And if one person slacks, he's going to go to the bench and soon he might not be in the team anymore. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that, that analogy makes more sense to me. But it took many years yeah. to, <laughs> to get to a point yeah. to actually accept that. And difficult that. conversations. Eh? <laughs> very. Yeah. And also looking very yeah. inward. And I think I'm quite hard on myself and I had to really become more kind. I think becoming a mom two years ago has also... Mm played a huge part in my entrepreneurial journey to also go like, okay, Christine, it's okay to, you know, tell people your child is sick and you're just not available right now. Yeah. And I know yeah. you're also a family man. Yeah, you have three absolutely. kids as far as I know. Three boys, yeah. So I'm also yeah. curious to know how you kind of juggle the family life side um, yeah, with it's, business. It's like, crazy. <laughs> total chaos. Tell people that don't have kids, how does no, it go? <laughs> it's horrendous, but it's so nice. I mean, it's everything, you know. For me, I've got three boys now. They are eight, five and almost three. So it's full and busy. And I've always enjoyed that. I mean, it's got its challenges. We kind of out of the small nappy hard <laughs> nights thing. I mean, it actually happened the other night, we realized we are now sleeping through the night. And we both didn't even take stock of that because we're so tired. You know? <laughs> we're both like, hey, do you realize that for the last few weeks, we've actually slept through the night? <laughs> Um, That's so, awesome. Which is pretty awesome because that, that is like a parent years, win. That yeah, is a parent win. <laughs> I mean, we've had eight years of not doing that. But for me, building this business is my life. It's what I do. And I have like a Hebrew kind of mindset of like life is all the things. It's not just like work or home. It's all of it together. 
the boys love coming to work. They love the factory. They from like the age of two, they were drilling holes in pieces of wood and stuff. <laughs> awesome. So for them, like they've got their toys when they come and play and make blocks of wood and do stuff. Um, and all the offcuts and samples and stuff go to them and they oh, make amazing. stuff. So that's been for me building the kind of life that I, that the real value is to impart the appreciation for design to my kids. I think they've got a heightened, probably slightly <laughs> over the top, like awareness of quality. <laughs> Because they can all say the word quality, and and like the three year old is, you know, he's he's kind of small, and but they always like, Dad, is this good quality or not? <laughs> so I might have driven that one in a bit hard. Make good quality stuff, you know, so, but it's cool, you know. They love being around, and for me, like, it's a lifestyle. I'm not like aiming to amass a certain amount of wealth or a certain lifestyle or certain anything else. It's like a creative life is what I'm building and what I enjoy, and my kids are very much part of that. So like, if I can't be a dad and a present dad to them, then I would rather change something about how I'm working. That's for me what the balanced life looks like. Yeah, it's like all intertwined um, and it's it all, all needs mixed. to work together. Yeah. It's not separate silos no. that you're trying to maintain. Yeah, and we don't get it right all the time. I mean, we go through seasons like we went through a season where we moved a whole factory like about 18 months ago and that was an incredibly busy time. And that's just a season where you're doing that and then you move and you set it all up and then it's like, okay, we can breathe again. Now we've been in the season of these new machines arriving. So for the last like three or four weeks, it's been intense trying to build the machines and learn how they work and stuff. So there are these like ebbs and flows, but I know that for me, my like touchstone is returning back to family time and being able to be present to them as a dad, not like letting my mind be everywhere else. And they're so good at that. Like, I mean, as you know, the kids are just now, they're just here and now. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> So it's super nice. You can't take yourself too seriously for too long. Yeah, they definitely bring in a good balance. And if you think of the entrepreneurial journey, it's all like massive highs and massive lows. And there's always things happening and changing. And I think with my little one, AD, coming into the mix, it's also definitely just highlighted how this is just never going to be like stable, you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that's actually what we've yeah. subscribed to. And we love that. Yeah. yeah. With the highs and the lows, there's obviously some moments that are just like amazing in the journey of building a brand that you love. And you've just mentioned you get some projects, you know, you sit down mm. and you're like, okay, huge client, we yeah. really need to get this right and not show them that we're human. We just need to make it yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I know you've been involved now during COVID with some projects with Nando's and yes. tell us a bit more about the project that you guys were. Yeah, we've done a lot of work with Nando's. The first project we did with them was so many years ago, we'd furnished the head office in Joburg, Central yeah, Kitchen, CK. Yeah. yeah, and that kind of exposed us into their world. Now, Nando's for me, like, I'm not a paid uh, influencer for Nando's. <laughs> I love Nando's. I love the food. I love the culture. I just love the whole experience. I'm a bit of a nut for it. I think they got the spice perfect, you know. It's absolutely <laughs> like, delicious. Like, are you, so you're not I like a, the hot. Yeah, okay. I was just I about like to ask one, you, yeah. you're not the lemon and herb guy. No, no, no. Not at all. No, <laughs> I used to be mild for a few years and then I moved up to hot and now I'm just so happy. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, Nando's is like one of the first, probably the only, like, big corporate, and they really aren't even a corporate if you go work with them. They're the most amazing people, but they're one of the like only kind of corporate South African businesses that have taken the design industry seriously and have said like, hey, well, if you guys say you can make us this furniture on time, then do it. And they've taken risks on us and we've grown so much, not just ourselves, but like so many other design businesses around us have grown from the support from Nando's and the trust, you know, just like yeah. saying, go for it. And it's pretty serious because they've got real deadlines involved. Like if they're opening a restaurant and they need the furniture, they've invested millions in buying the space or whatever, you know, building these big kitchens up and everything. And 
like to risk it on local designers is a big thing from their business aspect. And I think in a way it's really paid off for them on so many levels. It's built this affinity for uh, the public to know this is a business that really supports South African design. Mm. These guys are serious about it, not just like local is lacquer, whatever. Little corner yeah. shop there. <laughs> no, not at all. You know, it's not a token. It goes right mm. through. And I really have met so many different people there and they're a joy to work with. You know, if there's a product defect or there's a scratch or something on something, we sort it out because we love them and we love the way that they work with us. So it's not like a kind of corporate, you know, serious like legal documents. And it's just like a real trust relationship. Tracy Lynch has been amazing in just connecting the local industry with Nando's in such a good way. It's been really meaningful. That's amazing. Yeah. I think it's so inspiring to hear about corporates that really do get it right, you know, and we need that. We need that in South Africa. Absolutely, That, that yeah. there's a trust factor that goes to creatives. And I think yeah. being a creative but also business person, I always say like I'm kind of half-half, it's not always easy for right brains and left brains to kind of meet each other. But we do need that. We need that to grow the industry. I think it's made a lot of business sense for them as well. Like financially, they're getting a really good quality product, which outlasts the normal restaurant grade stuff that you'd be buying if you're buying it off a catalog. Mm. So that's the one thing that they're getting better quality. They're also getting unique furniture, which makes their stores look unique, which brings people there in a different way that you would to a normal chain store that's just yeah. got like generic stuff. So I think it's not just only like a feel-good thing. It's actually good business sense. When we make like tabletops for them, we use solid oak, you know. There are not many restaurant type of yeah. chains that are using solid. And when you go into one of these other places and they've got like a veneer that's already chipped off and it's grimy and unhygienic and everything yeah. else, you're like, sure, I'm not going back. So it's not just like a feel-good thing with Nando's. It's a real thing. It's a real value on both sides. And that like really works for me because that's like what I've been building my whole life is like showing people that good design does actually have intrinsic value. It makes sense in your business. It makes sense in your aesthetic. It makes sense in so much more than just like, wow, we're using a design firm. Design is not the thing. It's value that you're getting. Yeah. You, know? you need to be getting good value. And if it comes like with a name attached, that's cool. But ultimately, like as a client, buying local design or buying good design, you need to be getting value for it. Yeah, it adds value to the space that they're trying to create. Yeah. And I just want to touch on like, you're not just in the furniture business, but you're also in the coffee business or <laughs> you yeah. used to be in the coffee yeah. business. I don't know if you guys still yeah. have yeah. Um, the coffee. Yeah, we do. You, do you still have it? Like We still have field the office. field office. Yeah, it started in like 2010 as our way to pay for a showroom in the center of town because we couldn't afford like a dedicated space. So we started the coffee side of it as like a way to pay the rent and stuff. I love that. Yeah, and our factory at the time was so small, we couldn't have a showroom in it. It was like one or the other. We would ride in from Salt River to the East City, like Harrington mm. Street, cycle in for all our client meetings, have a coffee, do our drawings and stuff, and then ride back and check on the factory and carry on with that. There was a cool routine. Uh, James and I still both very much on bikes. I mean, he's a serious athlete now as well. He rides competitively. That started as a sideline business and then grew into like a proper business for a while. It was quite crazy. And I'm a bit of an entrepreneur. Um, my grandfather was Afrikaans and he would have called me a smos. <laughs> and I, I quite like the word, you know. I think it's a cool word. As an English person, I don't have the negative connotation because I think it, I understand in Afrikaans it can be like positive or negative. Yes, yes. Like a smos could be someone who will like sell ice to an Eskimo or sell yeah, their almost, grandmother. Almost like a bit of a schema. Yeah, but I don't have that connotation. So for me, it's like I've grown up hustling. I started working in a furniture factory when I was 12. 
So I'm just used to working. I haven't stopped working my whole life, you know. That's probably because you really love it that you keep going. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. And I enjoy seeing opportunity. I mean, even this last year has been like, besides that initial scare that we all had when the world stopped and we were like, I, I was wow, just about you know? to, to ask you, when the yeah. world stopped, what happened? <laughs> it was really scary. The beginning was like super scary because we've bought this factory building now, which is a massive financial risk. And it's so nice because it gives us the stability that we need and like to not be in a, a building that our landlord like won't let us adapt and change. And it's really expensive to set up a factory. So you like power and stuff. You spend so much money on all these things that are not yours if you leave. So from a security point of view for us, it's been amazing to like be able to own this factory. But then obviously financially that happened just before COVID. And wow. so we'd spend any savings we had on the buying of this factory, setting it all up and getting ready for this new kind of wave. And then the world stops and we sort of like, okay, what's next? Are we going to lose everything we've just worked so hard for wow. like last 13 years, you know? So it was a really scary initial period. And then I think like once the initial anxiety wore off and I realized, okay, so like you're going to have to hustle now. You're going to have to figure this out. And I think that initial part is sort of just the normal reaction. The second part is actually normal for us. And I know this is unprecedented times. It's not all normal, but to some degree, like in this country and humans in general, we are always so adaptive. We're so good at making what we most need. And so for us as a business, that's been our journey from the beginning. We needed a job. We couldn't find that. So we <laughs> made the job, you know, we needed like to design stuff that we could make. And that's how we built our design library. So COVID like presented this renewed opportunity just to shake it all up again. So we just hustled like crazy. We designed stuff. We designed a bed for the field hospitals for COVID itself. Wow. Like a really low cost, high volume bed that we could make fast. And unfortunately, the tenders and stuff, by the time we got ours in was just as the story was breaking around the corruption on the PPE stuff. So oh, wow. all of that just stopped. And all the procurement just stopped because there was like a lot of dirty business happening. But it was cool. We got in touch with like a lot of cool people in the health department and we showed that we could provide value there for products that they were importing. And we also showed ourselves that we could make a thousand beds. That was what they needed in three or four weeks. And we wow. could do it. We designed something that we could actually do as a small business, which was really fun. And all the learning we got from that, there's products that have come from the learning from that bed. So yeah, COVID just presented this opportunity for us to just be shaken up again. And we ran an online sale just to help us pay the bills and keep ticking over. And that like broke our whole system. It was how, insane. How did I not see the sale? Like yeah, I don't know how. It ran for a month. And, really? Um, I think it was the month of April, if I remember right, or May around that time. And we basically did like, let's say the equivalent of a year's worth of online revenue in a month. No way. Yeah. It broke the internet for us. So, like, so, so you your three-year-old started packing boxes. <laughs> it was like that. And the crazy part was when we could return back to work, we could only return with 30% of our staff because of the COVID rules. So we had to have this like lean team of people and we had to like constantly sort of say, okay, you can come to work today and then you stay tomorrow and we'll get the other guy in because we needed your skill today and not tomorrow because we weren't allowed to have everyone at the oh same time. Oh my goodness, what a schedule. It was a total scheduling nightmare and two team members, like one in admin logistics and one in the design, 
left around that time. I think just personal stuff was pushing up for a lot of people. It was like, if you've got anxiety or other stuff going on in your life, then that was the time for it to all like come to the fore. And yeah. I think we've all like gone through like a fire. So we were lean, like our team was down from like five down to three at the time. And it was crazy. And people have ordered the stuff and paid for it. So now we've got to deliver, you know. I mean, you imagine like doing a year's worth of orders in the space of a month. And then under the COVID stuff, like all the steel industry was affected. So there was no raw materials, like things as basic as bolts you couldn't get because the supply chain had been interrupted. Wow. And so then a simple thing, like you'd be phoning a client saying, I've made your table and I just can't get the bolts. <laughs> and as soon as I give you those four bolts, I will <laughs> deliver your table. I promise. It was like things as basic as that. And I think fortunately, we all just decided like, cool, we're just taking this <laughs> on, you know, and we took that headspace of just being like positive and yes. And we were just really honest and we just communicated as much as we could. Like whenever there was a delay, we just say, these are the 10 people you're going to have to phone now and let them down and apologize and say, sorry, we're doing our best. Like we were working 12 hour days for like the whole year. It was insane. Wow. But we did it and it taught us a lot and we haven't had to lay off anyone. We didn't have to short time or retrench anyone. We've hired more people. We gave our staff a raise in July or August last year, which was like in the middle of this whole chaos. Amazing. Um, where no one was getting raises, people were all being short-timed. And we were saying, guys, like we're actually in the position to give you all a raise. This is insane. And it's a lot of things. But for me, the main thing is design because we were able to pivot and innovate. And that's what made our staff not lose their jobs versus other businesses that are not in that creative space of being able to change and adapt. And they're more regimented. And that's why I'm saying it is more than that. I know that like there's hustling and there's contacts and there's a lot of other stuff. But if you boil it down, I would say it comes down to like the fact that we're a design-led business versus a profit-led business or a like import-export business. We're all about design. So we'll just adapt. If we run out of materials, we'll change material to something else, you know? So it's been an amazing journey. I mean, now our team, we've grown, like we've been able to hire people like We've got Dylan on the team as a chef and he was like working his way up and got a really high job as a chef in the restaurants and all the chefs just like stopped, you know, all the restaurants stopped. So he was looking for work and we said, well, come. And he's an amazing guy. And all of his experience from being in the kitchen, it's the same thing. It's like a different recipe, um, but it's the same. He's making a meal out of all the ingredients, you know, so now he's like running production and training staff and he's so good with the people he's so good with like helping us just cope with all of the chaos the chaos i don't think the yeah. chaos is ever going to be resolved no. if you run a business right no. i think that's something i had to adapt to through the years ian always says to me when you become comfortable with the uncomfortable things will be okay yeah. you know and that's kind of been the yeah. motto it's like Absolutely. that's the one motto the other motto has been like since AD came along okay tomorrow we try again that's our motto yeah. like tomorrow we yeah. try again Do it all <laughs> you over know again. we just try and improve 1% yeah. not 20 or 30 mm. but just like 1% then we yeah. like on a good trajectory yeah <laughs> we had this cool story that happened like just before the lockdown happened or two days before you remember everyone was sort of like it felt kind of unreal like what's going to really happen here it was too late to do anything. It was like, you know, last minute. And so we had all these offcuts and we made these little um, kids boxes 
out of like blocks of wood, random like sizes, what I've been doing with my kids for years, but we made them into like a sellable little thing. We ran down the road to our packaging supplier and we said, what boxes have you guys got that you don't want? Like random like wine boxes or whatever. Yeah. And we ended up with these cool kind of shoebox sized things. And we then cut like samples of wood and we had two machinists just running all our offcuts, all our waste into these random shapes and sizes. We got little like paintbrushes and glue bottles and we stuck it all in a box and we put it on Instagram. Oh, wow. And within like two hours, we had people queuing up to buy this stuff because we were all going to lockdown. And like as yes. a mom, you know, what are you going to do with your kids for the next three weeks? You know? <laughs> exactly. Like what kind of activity can you keep them busy with? So we had this idea of like just selling these boxes of blocks so that they could glue them together and make stuff. That's and so cool. Just like a Jenga kind of thing, but yes. all like round and square and triangles. And we made mm. like a little quick code so that the machinists would know like how many of each thing to put in the box. But I mean, it all happened within like from the morning to doing it by that afternoon, it was being sold. People were buying wow. it, you know. And it was such an amazing thing of just like, this is what creativity can do mm. in such a short space of time and the internet. And people just bought everything we could make and we put it at the coffee shop and people came and just, and it was kind of like that frenzy of people like buying stuff because they know they were going into this lockdown with their kids. But the end result was amazing because then we sold them for 50 rand a box and we took all the money and we went to the Epping food market and I just gave like a wad of cash to this guy and I said, just give me everything you can. And I basically bought his whole store and we put it on the back of the bucky and we went to the staff in the factory and we made these massive bags and each guy took home like, the equivalent of two big potato bags full of fruit and veg. Amazing. And it was so cool because they saw it and it gave me like goosebumps because I, as I drove into the factory, the guys were all like, what's on the back of the bucket? It's like this, you know, veggies and stuff. And then I said, guys, this is what we made from the proceeds of those blocks that you saw us cutting. Mm -hmm. And they were all really involved in packing these blocks because it was so fast, you know. The guys started clapping and I like wow. just about broke down in tears because I was so like blown away by their response to the whole thing. But they saw that what we did there was like we quickly turned like a whole lot of waste into value. And that's what good design and creativity is. And that value is helping people with their kids in their home for the next few weeks, like having a creative outlet to do. And that's brought us a whole lot of fresh fruit and veggies, which is going to help them in the next three weeks when they don't have money for food, you know? Because yeah. as a business, we'd said to the guys, we don't know how long this lockdown is going to go. We can't commit to being able to pay your salary while you're not at work. Like we just said from the outside, like we're going to do our best to get UIF and do everything we can. We're not going to leave you like stranded, but we can't commit. We're not like big enough to do that. Yeah. And it was such an amazing kind of full circle loop for us. Yeah. And the guys like they really understood like this is what it means, like taking an idea and making value out of it. But you're going to have me in tears now. So we're going <laughs> to have to end the conversation because it's. I don't think we can top that story. But I think it's exactly like... As a business owner, I think we have such huge responsibility to look at the whole picture holistically. And yeah. like you said, what you actually did is you saw it. You've always seen the journey, not necessarily each part, but you kind of see how it all connects, like how all the dots connect. And when you mentioned in the conversation also, like every guy has a little part to play in the journey of creating these products, but you're putting out a picture there for them in the factory where they can actually see it in a produced shoot in perfect lighting or in a beautiful home. Maybe they've never been in a space like that themselves, but they can all of a sudden see their part that they do in the factory and they can see it in the big picture, you know. And at the end of the day, we're not just making products. We're investing in people's lives, whether it is through a product that it makes it better or whether it is by giving someone a job or putting food on their table and 
as we all know, everyone that works for us also has mouths to feed at home. So it just is a big cycle of like handing the baton from one to the other. And I think it's so beautiful to give someone the opportunity to actually visually see the practical implications. And I think that's what I really take from the conversation is, is how we can in a more visual way, sometimes someone doesn't have that ability. And I think we also sometimes see that with clients where some of our clients don't necessarily come from a visual background. They can't envision it. But I think as designers, we are very good at envisioning something that you you haven't even figured out the, the journey. You just have an inherent feeling like this is going to work yeah. or if it doesn't, we'll figure out yeah. how to do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so the last question I have is, what is the one product that hasn't seen the day of light or that's maybe there in the back office? Something you've made that you've never shown the world, like one project you can think of that's, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's <a good laughs> not, not the bicycles because we yeah. now know about, about yeah, the yeah, bicycles. Yeah, yeah. There's been a big graveyard of products um, because I love the experimentation of it. And for me, like the graveyard doesn't show failure. It actually shows progress and process. So I'm quite proud of the graveyard, even though they're like horrendous when you look at them. We had to clear a lot of space now for these new machines. And so part of that was like taking all these old like bent pipe chairs and stuff that I was busy working on and scrap a lot of them, you know. And some of them I was looking at, I was going, wow, like, geez, did I really, did I do that? Did I think that? <laughs> but if you don't have that thought, you don't get beyond it to whatever's on the other side that's like really valuable. But there's a piece at the moment that's still on my shelf in my office and it is killing me. We've designed a really nice like scorpi. I don't know, there's actually not an English oh word goodness. for this. Oh my goodness. If you're going to say you're going to make a white one, I'm ordering the first one. Yeah. <laughs> So it's exactly that. And so, my, my friend Marisa's ordering the second one. You know, we've been Googling <laughs> like the past nice, few yeah. years. Like I think with lockdown, yeah. being very involved with the cleaning process, yeah, yeah. our cleaning cabinet actually, sorry, I'm interrupting your story, yeah, yeah. but our cleaning cabinet actually got like a little design remake because I was so obsessed with everything just being chucked into this cupboard, this, this you know. Hole, yeah. Yes, this dark yeah. hole. And then all these little yeah. plastic scoppies, like yeah. red and blue. And I was like, yeah. can't we just make it pretty, you yeah. know. So I like this project. Where is this going? No, I mean, my frustration is the same. So for me, it was like frustration with two things. One was the quality of what you can buy is just terrible. And like you're busy sweeping something up and it's just horrendous. Like the bristles are all frayed and it's only like a month old or the plastic handles already broken off and they're designed to break and it's terrible. And it's a reflection on us because we're buying it and they weren't always that way around. So we've made this one that's really good quality and it's like a focus on like, okay, we've got a company that's doing the bristles for us and we've like gone through a range of prototypes, like getting the right bristle. It's crazy how deep you can go. Like it's a (laughs) deep, deep dive into something that's like really basic in your life. But yeah, we've worked on the type of bristle, the thickness of the bristle, the way that they put the, the bristles in, we make the actual handle. But the part that hasn't been resolved and we've gone through, I don't know how many prototypes, but we're on version 99 here of the actual metal scorpion, and I'll show you some pictures. It's just like one of those things where I just haven't, I found like we haven't nailed it yet. And it's so frustrating because it's such a basic thing. It's so simple, but it's still not there yet. (laughs) And I've had this picture in my mind of what I would like it to be. And I just, we haven't got there and I can't figure out what it is. And every time we do a new sample, I look at it and I think like, is this it? Or is it, you know, not quite there? And I'm kind of driven by the fact that I really want the solution out there. Like I just can't bear (laughs) going and buying another one of those plastic things that we all buy and having it die. But we've made a really beautiful hook for it, like a space for it to and we want it to be like something that you buy and it lasts for a long time and you can like really take pride in what it is, you know, and give it like feature in your home (laughs) as opposed to like that dark corner that we hide it away. 
so weird because it's such a simple product. Yes. And yet, like, we all use them all yeah. the time and we all put up with this, like, substandard quality. But I think this project needs to be developed into redesigning the whole cabinet of tools. Yeah. <laughs> because I did exactly that the other day. I went back to the hardware store and I was like, oh, I need another mop and I needed this and I needed that. And it's like, often I buy a newer one because it's just like broken again. But I'm ordering one of those Scorpies, yeah. please. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm seeing a, like a very good collaboration opportunity here awesome. for the local editor yeah. to make the home like really pretty but practical. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was an amazing conversation. Thanks so much for sharing kind of what's been happening behind the scenes and just the journey of an entrepreneur. And I think that's really why we're doing these conversations. And yeah, just being the first uh, male, you did a great job, like just helping us understand the real behind the scenes. Mm. And I can't wait to see the factory and where everything is made. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. It's a luxury, actually, you know, to have this time to just reflect and a lot of the journey is happening in real time and so you're not able to look back on it and, and realize and I get to do this part which is really fun for me and it's engaging but behind the scenes is a whole team of people that need to be mentioned and said like thanks to these guys I mean without James and the whole team like I've said already my wife is really running the show for me personally and there's an amazing team of people that are getting it done actually and are not necessarily involved in this like vision aspect or some of these challenges but without them doing the product and getting it delivered and phoning the clients and right through the whole process, like we wouldn't be here. And so I, for me, it's a luxury to get this time with you. It's great, you know, it's really fun. If you're enjoying Behind the Edit, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and don't forget to leave a review. For those who are curious, Behind the Edit is part of a larger drive to uplift our local design industry and sister company to The Pretty Blog. If you'd like to follow what we're building, please visit thelocaledit.com and sign up to stay in the know. And as always, please keep spreading the local love on social media by following and tagging The Local Edit on Instagram. I'm Christine Mankies, and you're listening to Behind the Edit.